from some guy you probably met on the internet. It's the Casey Lewis Podcast. It's Friday, February 12th, 2016, and this is the Casey Lewis Podcast, where we talk about crushing debt, loving work, and chasing dreams that matter. I'm your host, Casey Lewis. Hey, do you have a question about money, careers, debt, investing, college, cars, or real estate? Well, there are a few ways that you can ask your question and have it answered as part of the show. You could visit the website, CaseyLewisPodcast.com, and click on the questions from the internet button, or as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Casey N. Lewis uh, or on Facebook uh, slash Casey N. Lewis. The N stands for Ninja. Well, kicking off today's show is a question from Eric. He said, I've got about $30,000 in cash that I'd like to invest into real estate. Uh, I know you're a real estate agent in the Dallas area, so what is the best way for me to start investing into real estate? Good question, Eric, because I love Real estate, I love investment real estate. I think everybody should have it at some point as part of their overall retirement strategy, as part of their investment strategy. Um, And several reasons for that. Real estate has several different avenues of making money. Obviously, if you go into the rental real estate market where you become a landlord and you have tenants, you get cash flow from when they pay their rent. Uh, you get money from that. And then you also have appreciation when the house appreciates in value uh, as a landlord. And you also get a ton of tax benefits um, as a landlord. So there are several different ways to make, uh, to have income generated from real estate uh, as a landlord. Um, There's also the other side of that where you could be um, a flipper. And you could flip homes, you could buy them for under market value, put a little bit of money into them, fix them up, and uh, then sell them for a profit. Now, all of that said, I don't like playing around with borrowed money in real estate investments. It's risky. Real estate doesn't is not a surefire guaranteed thing. You can have a house sit vacant for two or three or four months. If the market goes really bad, you could be in a lot of trouble. If you're flipping homes on short-term loans, on 90-day or 120-day loans, or six-month loan or something like that, and the market tanks, well, then you're in trouble. I grew up in Midland, Texas, which is about uh, five hours west of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and it is an oil town. It's in the Permian Basin. You've probably seen Friday Night Lights. You've heard about Midland, Texas before. It is an oil town, and when oil is good, real estate values are good there. When oil is what it is currently, real estate is not good there, and it is hard to sell homes, and home values are lower, and so if you happen to be a landlord or you happen to buy a house when the values are up, thinking that you're going to be able to flip it in a 90-day period, and you can't, and then the real estate market tanks, you're in a lot of trouble. And so I am not a fan of adding this extra risk into into the equation. And if we put out a 5-year or a 10-year or a 20-year investment plan with real estate, we're going to find out that using cash, gets you to the same endpoint destination. It just takes longer to get started. So if we look at it on a five-year, eh, it's not that much better to use cash versus if you had your 30000 Basically, you'd take that and you'd get a 20% loan and you'd get your first rent house. There would just be zero cash flow. 
the money that comes in from the tenant would go to pay the mortgage and you're, you, they call it where your tenant pays off your mortgage for you, which is great in theory until you don't have a tenant, until the air conditioner breaks on that house and you don't have any cash flow and you have to come out of pocket the money to fix the air conditioner. There's too much risk involved in the financing side of things for it to offset any possible benefits that it has for you. And if we plan this out and we chart it out over a five-year, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year time period, you get to the same endpoint if you just invest using cash. And so, Eric, you have $30,000 of cash right now. That is awesome. I would be, depending on what part of the country you're in, $30,000 might not get you a house for cash. It just might not. There's some towns where you absolutely could go get you a, spend $30,000, get you a house, paint it, put some carpet in it, fix it up and go ahead and rent that out probably for 500 or $600 a month. And that would be a great first start if you can do that with cash. But here where I live, 30,000 is not a possibility in a lot of places that I've been 30,000 is not a possibility. You really need to get closer to 100,000, 120, $150,000 in cash to be able to do that. So if you can pay cash for a house with $30,000 and make sure that it's in good shape and you still have an emergency account and you still have some money set aside to take care of other things that might go wrong with that house, then yes, I would go buy a house right now with cash, with your $30,000 cash and turn it into a rental property. Or I would save up for another six months or another year or however long it's going to take you to get to the point where you can pay cash for the house. And then you have the option at that point, if you're going to look on a long-term, I want to build out an investment portfolio of rental real estate, then cool, go that route. From me and us here in the Lewis household, we are doing something very similar, except I am probably going to flip some homes before I start turning them into rental homes. Now, I can do that because I know the market. I'm active and daily in this market and know what is a good deal, what isn't. If you're not active and daily into the real estate market, you cannot flip houses. You just can't. You're not involved enough to know that right now, today, this is a deal and next month you could sell it for this amount. And so for us, I'm going to do that because making $10,000 or fifteen dollars or $20,000 on a flip, you don't make the $80,000 that you see on TV everywhere. So... It, but it, to go make $10,000 on a flip and turn, you know, if I saved up $100,000, bought a $100,000 house, fixed it up, sold it for $120,000 after fees and everything, I make ten. Then I take that $110,000, I put it toward another house and do that a few times. Eventually, I'll get, I can turn over that money faster. And so that's why I personally would go the flipping route. But if you're not experienced in it, you don't understand the market, you aren't in a day-to-day playing around with real estate values, then you do not need to take that strategy. Just take the long long-term rental, be a landlord, build that up. I think it's a great addition to other parts of your 
overall investment strategy and portfolio? So good question, Eric. Sorry for the long rambly answer, but uh, I wanted to address both of those things for you so that you had a good, uh, good idea and foundation of where you could start. Hey, today's show is brought to you by the 30 Days to Better Money. If you're ready to take your financial life to the next level, then this ebook will give you all of the tools, tricks, and tips you need to crush your money goals. Whether you're struggling with debt, planning for retirement, living paycheck to paycheck, or just want a solid financial foundation, this 30-day challenge will walk you through exactly what to do and give you a roadmap for success. It's a free download. You can get your copy when you go over to Casey-Lewis slash 30 days. Up next, we've got a question from Jeremiah. He said, we're getting about $3,500 back on our taxes this year. We have some small debts other than our car payments and student loans. Should we pay this money toward the student loans or take care of these smaller debts first with this tax refund money? What are your thoughts? Well, Jeremiah, uh, the first thing that I want to work with you on is making sure that you are uh, having a savings and emergency account in place. Before we start paying off these small debts, we want to make sure that we can take care of some basic essentials should life happen because life is going to happen when you start trying to pay off your debts. So I recommend that you get one month of your guts. Gut stands for groceries, utilities, transportation, and shelter. And you're going to put that into a checking or into a money market account or a savings account. So one month of your guts, groceries, utilities, transportation, and shelter. So when you lay out your budget, whatever the total of those are, you need to be able to have that for one month just sitting in a money market account. So for a young young couple that is renting and doesn't have really any responsibilities outside of just going to work, um, or for a young single person, that may be somewhere around $1,000. Um, for a young family that has two kids and maybe some car payments or a house payment, um, that could be closer to $3,500, $4,000. It just depends on where your family is and what that situation looks like. But that is step number one. So we want to apply this $3,500 toward an emergency account to get that in place first. Now, if you have that in place or once you get that in place and there's money left over, the next thing we're going to apply that to is our debts. And we use the debt snowball method to figure that out. And so the debt snowball is simply this. We list out all of our debts in order from smallest amount owed to the largest amount owed. So that's the $25 parking ticket all the way up to the $30,000 car payment or the student loans. And you list those in order from smallest to largest. And that is how you apply paying this off because I want you to be able to knock out those little nagging, the $50 diagnostics fee from the hospital that's been sitting there for a year and a half. I want you to just get rid of it. It makes it feel good to know, hey, I just paid this off. And once you start paying those things off, you start gaining some momentum to be able to pay off some of the other big things like you mentioned with your car payments and your student loans. Now, all of that said, you just told me that this is coming from tax refund money. And I want to be very, very clear. You are not getting a refund. You're getting some change back. Because what happens is not that you paid in $3,500 and they're giving you $3,500 back. No, no. You had a tax bill due. And I don't know what your situation is, but let's just say your tax bill was $5,000 
and you paid in $8,500, well, then you're going to get $3,500 back. A refund would be that you paid in $8,500 and they gave you $8,500 back, or you paid in $3,500 and they gave you $3,500 back. No, this is just you getting your change back off of what you already were owed. You paid a bill. It's like if you went to Target and you totaled up your groceries for the week and they scan them and they swipe them through and it comes out to $87. Well, you if you give them a $100 bill or you give them five $20 bills, you give them $100, they're going to give you $13 back. And you wouldn't call that a refund. You would just say they gave you your change. And you wouldn't wait an entire year to get that money back. You would expect it right then. But with your taxes, if you're getting $3,500 back, that means you paid in an additional $300 every single month, Jeremiah. $300 every single month going to the government to sit up there and do nothing while you sit at home and you're trying to figure out how to pay these car payments and pay these smaller debts and take care of your student loans and try to figure out how to get out of debt. Like that doesn't make sense. You see, if this were, you know, back in the 1800s or way back in Bible times, you would go to work, you would get a paycheck for your total salary. There would be no FICO. There would no there would be nothing to do with this amount being taken out of your check. You would have a tax bill and you would go over to the tax collector. And if the tax collector says, hey, you owe us $427 this month off of the money you made, then you would write a $427 check. If he said, write me an $800 check and at the end of the year, I'll give you back $3,500, you would punch him in the throat. This doesn't make sense, but it's what every single person that is excited about getting their tax refund, I said that with air quotes, their tax refund, because it's not a refund, you're getting your change back. It's what every person that does it, they're excited to, that the government is giving them this money. They're not giving you this money, they're giving you your money back. They kept it all year, they don't collect any interest, but if you were a day late on paying that tax bill, they start penalizing you and charging you interest. It's a backward system. Like this whole idea that if you went to work and your salary was $48,000 and your employer gave you $4,000, but with that you had to walk over and write a check for your health insurance, you would know how much your health insurance costs are. And then from there you had to walk over to the tax collector and pay the tax collector. You would hate the tax collector because your bank, your your employer just deposited four thousand dollars into your bank account, and you walked out with only three thousand after you've paid everybody. And then to find out that the the tax collector kept an extra three hundred dollars a month and did that to you for the full year, and then just gave it back to you, like that's crazy. You would punch him in the face. So I'm, I don't like it when people get excited about tax refunds. I get that sometimes they happen. I get that circumstances change and sometimes you get a big tax refund. But you need to be paying attention to the amount that you owe and what your tax bills are and look at your tax return and find out what that number is. I believe it's on line 61 of your tax return that is the actual tax bill 
based on your income, what you owe the IRS, what you owe to the federal and the state government levels if you have state income taxes, how much do you owe them each and every year on a consistent basis, and then make sure that your employer is deducting that amount from your paychecks so that you're not getting these giant refunds. And so if you owe just a little bit, okay, cool. The idea that you could get maybe one or two or $300 back, that doesn't bother me at all. But when you start getting 1200 2400 3600 some people this week have contacted me with $6,000 tax refunds and they're struggling and behind on car payments or behind on credit card payments or behind on student loan payments. Like it doesn't make sense because if you just would stink and adjust your W-4s at your employer, you'd bring home an extra $200, $300, $500 a month and you could pay your bills and not just pay your bills, but you could get ahead. You could start saving for the future. You could start doing all of the things that we talk about on this show, but it's all tied up in extra government money that you just send off to the government and they send back to you once a year in the first or second quarter of the year. And then you go do something stupid with it. Like say, you know what? I got a $6,000 down payment and my car's broke. So I need to go buy a new car. So let me go use this as a down payment or we need a new TV or we need a new laptop. And we've been struggling and sacrificing all year on the current laptop we have. And now I've got a $6,000 check or I've got a $3,000 check. Let me go buy this. Like, it's stupid. You just wouldn't do it in any other circumstance. But when it's framed as a tax refund, as it's framed as bonus money that isn't your money, well, in that case, we can do whatever we want to with it, right? So, with your situation, Jeremiah, pay off your, get you a small emergency account equal to one month of your guts, Pay off your small debt, start working towards your large debts, but then go adjust your W-4 so next year you don't get a $3,500 tax refund. I'd rather see you bring $300 extra home a month, stop struggling to pay your bills every month, and get ahead. It's a great question. Thanks for writing in. Jamie asked over on Facebook, should I keep our emergency account in the same bank as our checking account? a good question and I don't really care. I don't have a preference as to where you keep it. I want your emergency account to not be something that's so easy that you can just walk into a drawer and pull it out because then you're less tempted to use it. Um, Your emergency account is for emergencies. It's not because you forgot to plan out for the kids clothes this month. Um, It's not so that because you ran short of grocery money um, and we're at the end of the month and so I need to be able to pay for grocery bills. That's not what your emergency account is for. Your emergency account is for emergencies. You've lost a job. The car breaks. The car needs replaced um, and you didn't save for it. Like major emergency, you've got to get this stuff taken care of. That is what your emergency account is for. Your emergency account is not for just everyday Dip, I'm going to dip into it just a little bit and then I'll replenish it when I get my paycheck. No, your emergency account... Um, is for emergencies and those other little things that come up like, oh, I forgot to budget for the kids clothing. You need to figure out how to make it work with the money that you do have without touching your emergency account. Your emergency account needs to be like a last resort. We've done everything else that we can do. And this is all we can do now is touch the emergency account. 
And when you make that commitment to keep your emergency account that way, you'll stop having less emergencies. You'll work through it with cash in your monthly cash flow, in your monthly budget, and you'll stop having major emergencies. And if you do have a major emergency, you have the cash sitting aside to take care of it. So where do you keep it? Well, like I said, I don't really care. If you want to keep it at the same bank as your primary checking, awesome. Unless you're going to be tempted to transfer it from your emergency account over to your checking account on a consistent basis. So I can tell you for us, yes, I have our emergency account at the same credit union as our primary checking account. It is sitting in a money market at our local credit union and we rarely, rarely touch it. It's if there's a, an actual emergency, um, we touch that. We will dip into our emergency account. We try to cash flow through everything we can. And then immediately the first priority on the next month's budget, if we did dip into the emergency account, is to replenish the emergency account. That becomes our immediate financial goal. And then we have separate savings accounts for things like uh, big vacations that we want to take for we only buy kids clothes like a couple of times a year instead of just on a monthly basis. So we save up uh, to be able to go shopping a couple of times a year to do that. Uh, Things like Christmas presents. um, All of that is set into a savings account that is at a separate bank um, because those things we do get tempted to dip into them a little bit more frequently and it takes three days to transfer the money um, out of those accounts into our primary checking account. And so that is an accountability measure for us. Um, but for our emergency account, I want to be able to access it if I need it within minutes, but not so easy that it's just cash sitting around somewhere. So great question, Jamie. Thank you for writing in. Hey, if you have a question, head over to the podcast episode page at casey-lewis.com or hit me up on Twitter and Facebook at Casey N. Lewis. Well, with all of that, I'm going to wrap up this week's show. Your dreams matter. Put your money in a winning position so you can do some awesome stuff. Hey, I'll see you next time. Thanks for checking out the Casey Lewis podcast. Connect with Casey on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following at Casey N. Lewis. You can get all the show notes for today's shows and tons of bonus content on the podcast episode page at casey-lewis.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave a rating and review for us over in iTunes.